On this week's TripCast, we'll talk about the Texas-led lawsuit to strike down Obamacare, Houston getting a Democratic presidential debate, and tuition affordability at the University of Texas. But before we do, I want to thank our TripCast sponsors this week, DHR Health and the Meadows Mental Health Policy Institute. DHR Health has revolutionized the healthcare landscape of the Rio Grande Valley and continues to raise the standard of healthcare for the benefit of our South Texas community. To learn more, visit www.dhrhealth.com. Meadows Mental Health Policy Institute's vision is for Texas to be the national leader in treating people with mental health needs. Learn more at texasstateofmind.org. Hello, this is Patrick Svitek here on Wednesday, July 10th with your Texas Tribune TripCast, our weekly Texas politics and policy podcast. I'm filling in for Emily Ramshaw as the host this week, and I'm joined by our new political editor, Matthew Watkins. Hello. As well as reporters Emma Platoff. Hi there. And Cassie Pollock. Hey there. Uh, just a reminder, we'll be taking your questions in real time via Facebook and Twitter, so send them our way using the hashtag TripCast. Uh, Emma, let's start right away with you. You just returned from New Orleans, uh, where a federal appeals court held a hearing Tuesday on the uh, Texas-led challenge to the Affordable Care Act. Uh, give us just a quick summary. What happened inside the courtroom? So um, it's been more than a year since Texas filed this latest lawsuit over Obamacare. It's not Texas' first time suing over this law, but this is an existential threat. They're trying to have it struck down as unconstitutional in its entirety. So after a trial court judge in December sided with Texas, said this whole law is unconstitutional and it's got to go, the appeals court, which is the Fifth Circuit in New Orleans, heard arguments yesterday. And I would say at the risk of trying to read some tea leaves here that it was probably a pretty good day for Texas. Um, the panel, it's a three-judge panel is how it works at this level, was two judges appointed by Republican presidents, one by George W. Bush and one by Donald Trump, and one judge appointed by Jimmy Carter, uh, Carolyn King, who was completely silent for the nearly two hours of oral arguments. Mm. So, so the tea leaves were good for Texas. Tea so, leaves yeah. were good for Texas, yeah. The Fifth Circuit is known to be one of the most politically conservative courts in the country, and I think the panel probably didn't disappoint for people predicting that yesterday. There were a lot of um, harsh, sometimes skeptical, sometimes sarcastic questions for the blue state coalition that's kind of up against Texas in this state. And um, just seems like there's some belief in the Texas argument uh, going into a decision we're expecting in the next couple of weeks. Where does this go next? What's the, the timeline that you anticipate? So I think an appeal is certain, um, whichever side loses. So we have Texas and the Department of Justice, the U.S. Department of Justice on one side. On the other hand, we have this California-led group of states and the U.S. House of Representatives, which um, moved to intervene after taking Democrats took a majority last year. Um, whichever side loses at this level, I think is all but certain to appeal. But the next step is kind of in question. They could either ask the entire Fifth Circuit to hear the case and bonk, or they could go to the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, either of those options, the judges on those courts have the option of saying, no, we don't want to hear the case or we don't want to hear it right now. So it remains to be seen. Were you surprised at how good of a day it was for Texas? I mean, you've written in the past about how a lot of legal experts have been pretty skeptical of this, these arguments. Yeah, so Texas's argument rests heavily on this question of um, what lawyers call severability. So basically, the, the legal argument here is that after Congress zeroed out the individual mandate, it's this tax penalty that's kind of, uh, Republicans argue, the engine to the car that is Obamacare. It requires you to pay money to the government 
if you don't have insurance. Um, and they, but, they zero that out as part of the tax bill that passed in 2017, right? Exactly. So Texas claims that after Congress zeroed that out, it's no longer constitutional because you can't interpret it as a tax. And then the next step, which is where they lose kind of a lot of legal scholars, including a lot of conservative and libertarian legal scholars, is that because this one piece of the law falls, the entire rest of the law has to fall as well. And that's where we saw a lot of the questions focus yesterday. Basically, even if we have to strike down this one piece of the law, do we have to kill the rest of it? Can we kind of pick and choose? Are there certain provisions that are more or less related to the individual mandate? Um, people forget because it's been in place for so long, but Obamacare touches basically every node of the healthcare system, you know, requiring that calories are reported in certain places, making certain um, costs relatively low for anyone with insurance, allowing children to stay on their parents' health insurance until age 26. And one of the most popular provisions, of course, is protections for individuals with pre-existing conditions. Uh, you, you talk about all those popular measures, um, you know, just from my inbox yesterday, the number of Democrats who wanted to make a big deal about this hearing. Um, what about the political optics? Do you think there's any part of Republicans who are hoping, you know, maybe it wasn't such a good day for them? It's an, <laughs> like, it's an interesting- it was a good day for us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's an interesting question. Um, and Texas Republicans at least have said in the past that governor said in December, for example, after this first early win at the trial court, if this remains struck down on appeal, don't worry, Texans, basically we'll put in place all these protections that you like. We'll have a better replacement for you. But uh, especially after a legislative session that was really- heavily focused on schools and taxes, we certainly haven't seen that plan yet materialize. There's still time, you know, the law will be enforced basically until this litigation is resolved, which could be, certainly will be months, could be years. So there's time, but um, many political analysts have pointed out, and I think Democrats are kind of seizing on this fact that uh, this ruling could come at a really politically perilous time for Republicans, you know, gearing up for a 2020 election that at least Democrats in Texas are hoping will be competitive here. Yeah. And, and you mentioned earlier Democrats taking the House. I mean, they took the House last year on a, a national uh, campaign that was very intensely focused on health care and going after the votes that Republican congressmen had taken to undermine or to knock down uh, parts of Obamacare. They made pre-existing conditions a central part of many races, including in, in Texas, uh, you know, Pete Sessions lost, uh, John Culberson lost, uh, you know, in races that really Democrats sought to make a referendum on their health care records. Absolutely. And, you know, you don't often have a sexy issue like healthcare in a race for state attorney general, for example. But this lawsuit now includes most states in the country kind sure. of on one side or the other. And it's given Democrats a really good, yeah. um, you know, campaign line, at least. I think you kind of answered this earlier, but we'll, we'll answer this question on coming in uh, here is Aaron asks, so what exactly are Governor Abbott's plans for replacing healthcare for Texans if ACA is, is struck down? Uh, we don't know yet. He hasn't really elaborated on sure. those plans. We had a story on that earlier this week and didn't hear back from his office. Um, this session, one bill that, that did pass was by Senator Kelly Hancock, a Republican from the North Texas area. It would basically, under the condition that Obamacare is struck down, it would allow the Texas Department of Insurance to recreate these high-risk insurance pools for certain people with you know high-risk conditions to get uh, what was very costly insurance when it existed in Texas before the Obamacare uh, was was enacted. And um, an important note on that, it, it really covered a very small fraction of the Texans who are now covered by Obamacare. I think at its peak, it was still under 30,000 people and they were paying high premiums for that care. So 
Obamacare provides subsidized coverage to about a million Texans right now. Right, so it would not be uh, nearly as sweeping of an alternative to Obamacare. <laughs> it, 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 it would not fill in all the gaps, right. certainly. And Senator Hancock, you know, acknowledges this is kind of a stopgap measure until the legislature could reconvene to put something broader together. But uh, depending on the timing, you know, the legislature isn't set to come back until January 2021. Right. Of course, the and, governor. And healthcare could. just hasn't, you know, there's a lot of obviously <laughs> rightful uh, skepticism at the claim that Republican leaders in Texas would have a plan ready in case this goes down. Uh, and part of that, I think, is just healthcare hasn't been on the on the top lines of the agenda at the Capitol. It wasn't this session. It wasn't last session from what I can recall. Um, you know, you had a Democratic state rep, I think it was, uh, tried John to Busey, yeah, yeah. force a vote on Medicaid expansion. Mm -hmm. That was probably the thing that got, the healthcare related thing that got the most attention this session, but it was otherwise drowned out, not part of the conversation and not elevated by, by state leaders. Yeah. Right. So now we're basically, all eyes are on one judge, right? You had a Trump appointee, <laughs> uh, Jimmy Carter appointee. A Carter appointee and a George W. Bush appointee, right? Yeah, and it was funny in the courtroom, they kind of sat left to right, right in that way, which was, you know, a helpful <laughs> mnemonic for uh, reporters like me. <laughs> but, um, good yeah. Lead, good lead material. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah, grateful for the seating arrangement. Yeah. Um, but he, yeah, even going into the arguments, kind of all eyes were on uh, Judge Jennifer Elrod, who was appointed by George W. Bush. Um, and she by far asked the most questions of any of the three judges. She certainly seemed skeptical of the California and U.S. House side. She also asked some, you know, tough questions of the Texas side. So we'll just have to see kind of right. where she falls out. Right. Well, uh, everyone, please continue to follow Emma. She's been all over this story, as well as Edgar Walters. Um, thank you very much for filling us in on that. Um, next topic, I want to switch to the more explicitly political side of things. Yesterday, we learned that the, the Democratic National Committee is going to have the third uh, presidential primary debate uh, in Houston, September 12th, and potentially September 13th uh, as well, if uh, as many candidates qualify. Um, immediately, we heard from the state party, the national party, that this shows that Texas is on the map, Texas is in play. Um, you know, let's cut through the hype here. You know, we've seen definitely a lot of early attention paid to Texas this cycle earlier than usual by a lot of presidential uh, candidates. Having the debate here this fall, what is the impact on, on Texas's political landscape or, or where Texas fits into this, this uh, national presidential cycle? You, you know, I'm not sure it necessarily, uh, the impact is huge. It may be more of a sign of what Democrats are thinking. You know, there's a lot of talk right now about whether Texas could be considered a swing state, whether it'll be competitive, whether John Cornyn really has a race on his hands um, in the Senate, you know, so that it could be an idea of the Democrats wanting to be here, wanting to have a presence here, wanting to kind of lay some early groundwork in the state. You know, maybe it's also they just like Houston in September. I don't know. <laughs> Not bad place. There are worse, worse times of the year to be in Houston. <laughs> Slightly worse. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, this is the first debate where they're going to have higher qualification standards. I believe it's you have to get 130,000 donors and you have to get 2% uh, or more in four qualifying polls. That's up from 60,000 donors or not and or 1% uh, in three polls for these first two debates. Um, how much of a, you know, a shrinking of the debate stage are you guys expecting and where do you think that's going to leave the, the two uh, Texan presidential candidates? It's hard to say exactly, you know, how many people will fall off having to clear that higher bar. Uh, neither of the two Texans most people are watching, Beto O'Rourke or Julian Castro, has yet met those bars. But it seems, you know, we, Patrick, you reported this week that Julian Castro recently cleared the donor threshold. We right. suspect, you know, both of them are 
still in the running at least, you know, what there's plenty of time to get there if they haven't already. But yeah, it would certainly be, um, I can't imagine it would feel good to be <laughs> cut out of a debate in your home state. Home turf. Yeah, I think it just puts puts the pressure on them more, right? To, to right. continue to try to excel in these polls where they're both, uh, you know, typically polling at what, single digits and, right. you know, yes, Both are in big low field. single digits or works usually a little higher nowadays, but they're both uh, in low single digits, and, and both of them too, in terms of ad- added pressure, have put Texas, you know, more so than other people, have put their home state at the center of their kind of campaign and their theory of the case. Both of them have touted that if you nominate me, I'm the kind of candidate who can win Texas, right. states like Texas, um, states like Georgia, Arizona, in 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 November. Um, and so I think that adds a little more pressure as well. Yeah, I mean, I think math would suggest if the the threshold is four percent in the polls. We're going to have fewer 2% than... 2% in four polls. Two, oh, I'm yeah. sorry. 2% in four polls. Mm-hmm. Well, still then, I think we're probably going to see fewer than 20, right, yeah. on that stage. Yeah, I mean, that, that Houston debate could be a really critical moment in the primary, just given how much the, the field is expected to narrow, uh, on the stage at least, yeah. and we'll see who drops out. It, yeah, I think, but, you know, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Patrick, but um, prior to the first debate, people might have been worried about Castro getting right, to that level, right. but he kind of, you know as we've talked about before, kind of helped himself out during that debate. And I think one of the big questions, well, will that continue um, or will that kind of bump fade away? But as, as you wrote this week, he did pass that donor threshold. So he's definitely in a better position than, than he would have been had he not had that performance in that first debate. Sure. Also just, you know, at the risk of stating the obvious, this brings major presidential candidates to Houston. You know, we saw some candidates doing a little campaigning, before and after the debate in Miami. And this could mean that we have, you know, prominent national Democrats converging on Houston to talk about issues that are important in Texas. And if nothing else, uh, there's probably some opportunity to do some fundraising while you're in town. Yeah, no, I'm always curious too when a presidential candidate comes to Texas for like a forum or a fundraiser, you know, do they make the, do they see the value? Do they make the decision in holding their own campaign event? For example, when uh, there was this NEA forum last week, um, I think there were only two candidates that held additional events in Houston. Bernie Sanders visited a local union training facility, and then Elizabeth Warren holds her own town hall at the University of Houston. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see what kind of additional campaigning it brings to Texas around that time. Um, So we'll obviously stay tuned. Um, Before our next topic, I'd like to thank two more TripCast sponsors, UT Southwestern and the Association of Electric Companies of Texas. UT Southwestern is number one in the world for research impact in the healthcare category, according to Nature Index, more at utsouthwestern.edu. The Association of Electric Companies of Texas is your resource for understanding the electric markets in Texas. Get an overview with our Electricity 101 at aect.ent. That's aect.ent. That's a bit of a tough one. Um, <laughs> moving on to our next topic. Uh, Matthew, uh, speaking of UT, the, the system announced a, a pretty bold move Tuesday as it relates to tuition affordability. What was that announcement? Yeah, so they are going to guarantee undergraduate students who come from families with a family income of under $65,000 that they're not going to have to pay tuition and fees from their own pocket to go to school. Um, a pretty big deal. They they used to have that promise for um, families under 30000 so that's basically doubling that. And, you know, I, I, think, I believe over the median income um, in the census. So presumably that will mean a lot of people who have worried quite a bit about affording college will get a big help um, by the university. Uh, they're doing this by um, creating kind of a new endowment from their 
massive twenty three plus billion dollar endowment, um, taking one hundred and sixty million dollars from that fund to to create this endowment, and I guess hopefully uh, using that money long term uh, to to pay for this initiative. Right. You've you've covered you previously in another life here at the Tribune mm-hmm. covered. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't that long ago, I guess. <laughs> Covered in the higher 90s, ed. I, I mean, how does this historically kind of fit into how UT has dealt with this issue of making tuition more affordable over the years? So, you know, uh, UT is a um, public school. So, you know, you compare to a lot of, and it's a prominent public school, right? And you compare it to a lot of its peers and its uh, tuition costs are somewhat favorable. But looking at the tuition and fees price tag, is somewhat of a misleading measure for how affordable uh, a university is because uh, financial aid uh, goes into a lot of that, right? And so um, a lot of schools have very generous packages of financial aid for lower income families and things like that. Um, This will kind of really go a long way in in terms of making uh, the university more affordable. Um, It's also just a shift in strategy in how they um, are using this $23 billion endowment. Um, The backstory um, on this is basically uh, um, more than a century ago, the legislature set aside some land, calling it the Permanent University Fund, and the money raised off that land was to be used uh, to fund... uh, UT and Texas A&M this is oil as well. This is, well, yeah, so at the time they weren't oil fields or they weren't believed to be oil fields. They were kind of just grazing lands and yeah. the idea was the revenue wasn't going to be that much. And then, you know, this is land in West Texas. It became, you know, it's part of the Permian Basin, which is, you know, one of the richest sources right. of energy in the right. world. And now all of a sudden, now UT has the second biggest endowment of any university in the country behind Harvard. Um, and basically, uh, you know, I and uh, me and another uh, reporter, Nina Satija, uh, looked into this in 2017 and basically found that they use almost none of this money for financial aid. Um, I believe less than 1% of the annual disbursement went toward uh, financial aid for undergraduates. Um, when we wrote that, um, and we highlighted a bunch of other kind of big spending measures uh, that they've been focusing on. Uh, that money on. When we wrote that, we got a ton of pushback um, from the leadership at the time. People basically saying that it was unfair um, and inaccurate to say that more of that money could go toward financial aid. And now they're uh, doing just that. And now they're doing right. just that. Um, so, like they read your story. As <laughs> um, someone like who hasn't followed higher ed, something that I'm curious about is like, what prompted the change? Was it just like new leadership uh, at the system? I'm, I think I read in Shannon's story, uh, Chairman L. Altai, yes, uh, um, Kevin Altai, former state senator, um, is definitely a big driver. So at okay. the time we wrote that story, there was a different board chairman, there was a different chancellor. Uh, they were kind of very resistant to, as I said, our reporting and this idea that they could do more. Uh, as soon as Kevin Altai joined the board, he's been pushing to kind of reevaluate how they spend that money. Um, a lot less on like administrative system initiatives and a lot more on enhancing the education of students and also making college more affordable. Um, I would say that he, and obviously uh, the new chancellor, James Milliken too, um, are a big factor in kind of why they've reversed course on this issue. Right. So just because we have at least one Aggie at the table, uh, (laughs) can we talk about, I mean, this is a huge, huge deal from UT and I think we'll go a long way. Can we talk about how this stacks up with other public universities in the state? I mean, is this 
that novel. Yeah, and we've got a question too from just we'll just maybe I'll just tack it on to yours so we can add to the discussion. Jeff asked, you know, what's the Texas A and M tuition assistance mm-hmm. that's been in place since two thousand eight? <laughs> Uh, is UTEX just catching up? Yeah, <laughs> funny story. Uh, just a bit of coincidence is I, like I, too. I, yeah. <laughs> I was working at the local paper in College Station when A and M announced its uh, its version of this. I can't remember uh, its title off the top of my head, but I believe it was for sixty thousand and under. Um, and uh, I, I think I actually wrote the story of them doing that. So yeah, they've been doing this for uh, almost a decade now. A and M. A and M has, yeah. yeah. And uh, you know, funny enough, in A and M kind of typical A and M fashion, they put out a statement after this uh, UT announcement today, saying, you know, we're glad to see uh, UT follow our lead yeah. on this big important issue. Um, it's kind of true to form uh, among Aggies uh, to kind of do that little poke. Right. Yeah. yeah. Another question that came in on this story uh, from Gary. Uh, he asks, you know, PUF money comes out of West Texas oil fields. Why isn't there more money for the UTPB campus in Odessa where the money is coming from? So it's a that's a complicated answer. Um, basically, the permanent university fund and how it's used is written in the state constitution. And um, the idea is that um, when it was created, UT and A&M were kind of the main focus of the universities. Two-thirds goes to the UT system. One-third goes to the A&M system. And... <laughs> it's very limited in how they can spend it. They can either do what's called system-wide initiatives or pay for campus construction on all the universities, or they can basically give the money to UT Austin to do as they see fit. And so the argument has been made in the past that UT Dallas, UTPB, all these other campuses, they can't spend that money on students at the university. Um, Some may argue with that. Um, Basically, you could... Could you argue that a system-wide initiative could be a system-wide scholarship program for students at different schools? Um, Up until now, at least, the University of Texas system has argued that they cannot do that, um, although, you know, that's never really been tested. Got it. Well, thank you for the thorough answer. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely glad we had you on instead of Evan. uh, (laughs) (laughs) All right, for our our final several minutes here, just want to pick up on some, some kind of political odds and ends um, in the U.S. Senate race, we just learned this morning that State Senator Royce West, Democrat from Dallas, um, who's considered likely to run for U.S. Senate against John Cornyn, uh, is has going to make an announcement on July 22nd. Um, what you know? How crowded is this primary getting? What does a Royce West bring to this primary that may not be there already? Well, it's getting kind of. Crowded, right? So we have Chris Bell. Um, MJ, right? MJ Hager. I mean, isn't he the only one? Should he actually enter the race uh, with legislative experience? Yeah. Um, yeah. You, you also have Amanda Edwards, a Houston city council. Right, uh, woman, right. Not legislative experience, I mean, you know, I guess municipal government experience. Yeah. I'm um, curious about like just how bruising it's going to be just, you know, how if, if West enters, you know, and if a, a few other people throw their hat in the rings, you know, um, how bruising of a, of a primary on the Democratic side is it going to be before heading um, into general election season? Um, right. It's, it, it seems to be like we're getting some candidates who are credible, but not necessarily anyone who carries such weight that they're going to knock people out. Exactly. It's, you know, it, it's, and it's an interesting kind of reflection on where Texas stands in politics right now. It's, it's maybe not necessarily such a th- sure thing that you're going to have a competitive real race that you're willing to give up a really cushy spot, but there are definitely people who are 
running to this race, maybe to an extent that we haven't seen in the past. Would you agree with that, Patrick? Yeah, I think so. I think geography will be interesting too, assuming all these folks run. You have someone from Dallas, you have two people potentially from Houston. MJ's geographic political base is Austin and the Austin suburbs, which are rapidly changing as we saw in 2018. Um, and, you know, and I think that that counts for something in a primary um, in such a big state, being able to, you know, have a base in some major geographic areas. But like you said, I mean, none of these people, um, you know, have walked into the, are walking into the race as top tier mm-hmm. recruits or contenders, I'd argue. Um, MJ Hager announced earlier this week that she raised uh, over a million dollars. don't have an exact figure, but over a million dollars in the second quarter. Uh, she was in the second quarter, you know, for that, that represents about roughly the first two and a half months of, of her campaign. Um, did that, did that number make your, your eyes pop? It's certainly not, you know, Beto uh, late 2018 numbers. It's, sure. it's uh, it, I think if you're a Democrat, you're happy to see a, a seven-figure number there. At right, least. yeah, I think it establishes her as, as a very serious contender. Um, O'Rourke, during that same period in uh, 2017, he was in it for the full quarter, so he had full three months. I think he raised $2.1 million or something like that. Um, so, you know, she's not, you know, way far off pace, um, but, uh, you know, I think that maybe there's just some Democrats maybe have skewed expectations after we just saw a Senate race where someone raised tens and tens of millions of dollars like a work did. And so, you know, in some ways, some of these folks are, you know, starting at scratch expectations wise. Yeah. And, you know, the big story, I'm you know, not breaking any news here. The big story about MJ Hager was she had this, you know, great campaign ad that really went viral and, and caught a lot of people's imagination. I think a lot of us are watching to see whether that was a kind of one hit wonder or whether there, that's something she can build on and kind of reignite that fire from, from 2018. Right. Absolutely. Uh, final question here. want to touch on the uh, Texas GOP chairman's race, or I guess the potential Texas GOP chairman's race. Alan West, the uh, former Florida congressman who moved to Texas and has lived here since I think late 2014, 2015, he announced last week uh, on the eve of uh, July 4th that he's exploring a run for state party chairman. Uh, He would be challenging the current chairman, James Dickey. Um, This race is going to happen a year from now, maybe over a year from now at the state party convention, um, which I guess is in in May, so a little less than a year from now. Um, You know, assuming West runs, is this a competitive race? What is the impact this has on on the Republican Party going into a pretty critical election cycle? Not sure what the impact is, but uh, you know I'm not entirely sold on the idea that the that, that the Texas GOP needs this on its plate heading into a you know a pretty intense election cycle. Um, that was kind of my take on it. I think right. n- nobody really could. And that was Dickey's very, uh, you know, obvious kind of uh, response to the West candidacy right. is we don't need to be. Facebook post, um, right? After, yeah, after exactly. the fact. Yeah, we don't need to be dividing the party as Democrats are on the march in Texas. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm thinking back to the last chairman race that I think you and I covered together. And, um, you know, I'm also curious just like how, how this impacts. Obviously, it impacts all of the activists and all the delegates. And, you know, there's tens of thousands of them, to be clear, who flock to these conventions. But aside from that, um, you know, there's obviously division and, and bitterness happening as the race heats up in the, in the final weeks of that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's worth noting how Dickey got to where he is. He's the former Travis County chairman. Uh, he ran uh, after the former chair, the former state party chair resigned. He ran and won by one vote on the state Republican executive committee. That tells you how divisive that race was. Um, and then he ran for re-election to the full term at the convention that you and I were at, where he also had a challenger and then she took it to the floor. 
And there was this messy floor fight that I think included one party official announcing her we resignation. Had a, a last on the minute floor. resignation so, on the you floor. You know, Dickie has been through these very contentious fight, two very contentious fights. I think, you know, just naturally, you're always going to have lingering factions of, of discontent after you go through those things. Um, it'll be interesting to see if West is the guy to to capitalize on that or if, if he's the right candidate to, to uh, yeah. Hey, yeah. What, what kind of case is he pushing? You know, it was a very lengthy statement that he made on, on YouTube live. live. YouTube video. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, and it wasn't exactly clear, um, you know, kind of, what the case was that he's making. I mean, I guess you give him a little bit of leeway because this is an exploratory phase. Um, you know, he just talked about, I think, making the party more aggressive and spoke in very sweeping terms about the historical um, momentousness of this moment yeah. in Texas. Um, yeah, and I mean, to that point, and maybe this is where he ends up capitalizing when, if and when he does decide to run is, you know, you saw so many, uh, you know, uh, conservative activists, I'm thinking like Joanne Fleming, uh, you know, Northeast Tarrant, uh, Tarrant Tea Party and Power Texans just be so upset with how the legislative session played out. You know, they all turned right. it up to a purple session. And then you saw James Dickey, the party chair, uh, you know, kind of not necessarily discount that, but, you know, really try hard on his messaging to just to side with the big three and say, no, this was this was a, a success on all fronts. You know, we passed historic reforms for, uh, you know, state edu- you know, for the for the right. state's public education system and, and for property taxes. So, um, you know, maybe I'm reading way too much into that, and I'm not sure. And I certainly haven't picked up on any sort of like public discontent that some of the further right people um, in the state party are are perhaps feeling with that kind of messaging that Dickey. Uh, portrayed because he's historically been a, a reflection of, you know, like uh, the more. Yeah, I mean, he definitely. I think I, w- I would say it's fair to say that before state party chairman kind of came out of the conservative grassroots right. in Texas, like a, you know, when he was traveling, you know, he would go and wait for hours at the Capitol to testify and stuff. You yeah. know, pretty grassrootsy guy. Um, to the extent that he's in trouble, it seems like you know it could be on two fronts. And I'm not making any bets about the magnitude of these problems. But you, as you pointed out, there's some folks on the on the on the farther to the right who are upset with the way the session went, um, upset with the you know lobbying effort by the state party at the Capitol. And then there are some folks who, and I don't know if this is criticism, but necessarily just scrutiny. There are folks maybe more a little more on the pragmatic side who are just wondering, is this guy up for what's coming at us in 2020? Um, and to that extent, it seems Dickey has made some moves to try to address that. He launched a, uh, fund, a national fundraising drive a few, couple months ago that you know was explicitly with the message of protecting Texas as a presidential state right. in 2020. They just announced this volunteer engagement project. Mm-hmm. Um, a bunch of new hires. Carl Rove is involved. Steve so Ministeri, former, former party chairman, is involved. Chairman. Uh, and so. It seems like he's he's responding to that, uh, but there's no doubt this is going to be a very pivotal election cycle for for Texas Republicans, and you know who's going to lead that party is you know probably going to be a more important question than than typically. Yeah, uh, we don't have an update from from West on on when he. I, I know he said in his YouTube video that he's going to be traveling the state, meeting right. with people as he explores this potential run, but. That's yeah. That's pretty I, much I don't think he right. said when he's going to decide it yet. And it's also worth noting this decision is going to be made at the convention in May 2020. So a lot of you know, I, I'd argue, you know, a lot of what mm-hmm. the state Republican Party is going to do to prepare for this election cycle, I think the groundwork needs to be laid and is going to be laid, you know, prior to that. Um, is there anything going back to West? Is there anything to read to the fact that he chose this race as opposed to some of the other races that he was being 
thought of as a candidate. I think the thing to read is this deep disappointment among Democrats <laughs> that he didn't run for Congress. <laughs> and I think that, you know, the DCCC was salivating at the prospect of him running against Colin Allred because they have this, you know, West is a conservative firebrand, has said a number of uh, offensive things in the past. Um, Colin Allred was already fundraising off of something that West said, I think, in 2012, calling Obama supporters a, th quote, threat to the gene pool. Um, so, you know, Democrats, I think, were, you know, just, you know, really hoping that he was going to run for, you know, a popularly elected office so they could use that against him, especially in a battleground district like like Allred's. Mm -hmm. So, but I'm sure they'll still get mileage, to be clear, out of him running for state party chairman. Um, and they, you know, put out a, a statement along those lines when he said he was exploring. So, all right, that is definitely all the time we have. Um, thanks to Spoon for our theme music and to our sponsors this week, DHR Health, the Meadows Mental Health Policy Institute, UT Southwestern, and the Association of Electric Companies of Texas. On behalf of Matthew, Emma, and Cassie, as well as our producers, Michael, Ray, and Bobby, this is Patrick. Thanks for listening.